If you'll take out God's Word, let's turn to Psalm 96 this morning, and we'll dive in to the heart of why we are here. Psalm 96. All right. We'll see. We'll read this, and we will pray. We want to pray for what's obviously went on went on in our country, even just this weekend, with uh, a lot of storms blew through a bit of the heartland, and. Uh, a lot of destruction that we really can't even discern what's taken place. Uh, but it also testifies to uh, the power of God and that we do live on a planet that is groaning and desires to be set free from this body of corruption, uh, which is meaningful as we kind of put our eyes towards Christmas, right? This one who was born who would do exactly that and set us free from this body of corruption. All of this groaning will be no more on a day yet future when he returns. And we are looking forward to that day, yes? Uh, let's stand to our feet in honor of God's word. I know you've got everything out, but let's, in honor, we'll stand, we'll pray. Psalm 96 reads the following, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord of families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord Lord. Glory, the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Uh, let's pray this morning. Father God, we do turn to You today. We are grateful to be in this place with the roof over our head and a heated facility. and We're grateful for the work that You're doing here and this area of North Lake, we thank you for the way in which you are growing and building your church. And not only, Lord, the collection of its people, those who are called by your name, but Lord, also you are growing us in your likeness. You are warming our affections to you and you are filling our hearts with gratitude. And we ask, Lord, for your glory that you would do that wondrous work even this morning as we gather. We thank you that you are here with us. We thank You that Your Spirit desires to move among us and in us and through us as we use our gifts, as we lift our voices, and we turn our eyes and attention to Your Word. Would You find us malleable, teachable, and Lord, would You have Your way for Your honor and Your glory. We pray for the next hour that You would be with our pastor, that he would preach with conviction and clarity. And Lord, that he, you would enable him by your spirit to step out of the way and that you would give, provide a spirit unction to preach only that which you desire for him to preach as we step into this Advent season. Lord, we are grateful 
for this strategic part of our calendar of which we're perpetually grateful for the fact that a Savior left the glories of heaven and came to this earth in the form of a man and lived the perfect life, Lord, that none of us could possibly dream of living. And He proceeded to then die the death that each of us deserve for our sin. Lord, we're grateful for this substitute. We're grateful for this child that was born, that it pleased You to have all deity dwell in Him in bodily form. We ask that You would find us to be a thankful people. And Lord, we are mindful of those, even in our country today, there are churches who are now sifting through the wreckage and with no real place to meet. Lord, we pray that You would encourage their hearts. We are mindful this weekend as we see the power and devastation of storms. Romans 8 is front and center before us in clear fashion. Lord, this earth is groaning. We see sickness and the earth is groaning. We see suffering and the earth is groaning. We see storms and evidence still more of groaning. Lord, we thank You that there is a day where You will set it free. And that is possible because of what Christ, Your Son, has done. We revel in that. We rejoice in that. And we even ask now in this time, we get to turn our attention to now a spiritual activity of which You have called all of us to, and yet none of us are as faithful as we ought. Lord, help us to rest under conviction as You desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You can take your seats this morning. You're going to deal with a couple of water breaks this uh, this um, morning. was sick earlier this week, so it's going to sound like I'm going through puberty from time to time. I assure you there will be a squeak or two, and that's okay. Well, again, a lot of you have filed in. Welcome to Equip Ministry. Uh, that is the purpose of this hour. If you're visiting and coming and going, and perhaps you are coming and you've slept for the first few weeks, I want to remind you that that's why we're here. The point of this time is to to make us better worshipers. It's to equip us to steward this treasure of a gospel with greater integrity and zeal. To equip us to contend earnestly for the faith. At Northlake, we know that if we are going to be a people who are fruitful and faithful, it is imperative then that if this is to be true of us, that we consistently partake in a systematic, thorough study of the doctrines found in God's Word. And so that's why we've been covering the fundamentals of the faith. Just to give you a sense of where we've been, we have covered bibliology, where we looked at the origin and nature and sufficiency of God's Word. We then traversed down the aisle to theology proper, where we looked at the personhood and, and nature and work of God. Not to be outdone, we then moved to Christology, where we looked at the person and work of Jesus Christ. That miracle of salvation known as regeneration, we unpacked the suitcase known as soteriology. And then we looked at pneumatology, with the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, not only in salvation, but henceforth, that when we are in Christ, He continues to work in us. And we're grateful for that, yes? We have a Helper, and He has come, and He's with us. We then looked at ecclesiology, which is the study of the nature and function and practice of the church. And like I mentioned earlier, we're now in practical theology this morning. I do want to begin by asking, can you think of two spiritual disciplines, two activities that when you, when we 
we bring them up in the church, there's all, all of a sudden this tidal wave of conviction that immediately and consistently always comes barreling over us. What are some of those spiritual activities we are to participate in that we're automatically convicted by, you know what, I could be and should be doing better in said area? Go ahead and begin to name some of those for me. What's that? Sharing the gospel, excellent. Reading the word, prayer, any others? What's that? A testimony, excellent. Absolutely, and we're going to cover really all of those over the next couple of weeks and have touched on them even reading God's Word some months ago, right? Jesse mentioned the, the first one was just sharing the gospel, the discipline and activity of evangelism, and that's exactly the area that we're going to unpack today. Now, no doubt this will not be exhaustive as none of these areas that we've covered have been to this point, but we will spend at least the remainder of our time desiring to be faithful. Some of the things that we will cover is the call to evangelism. We want to understand our responsibility, and we want our hearts motivated and stirred for the lost as we do so. We're going to then take a look at the that which hinders us, the hindrances to evangelism. We want to overcome those barriers. We want to know them and see them clearly, these things that keep us from evangelizing. Then we're going to look at, in order to be equipped, we're going to look, take a look at the essentials and the strategy of evangelism itself. Each of us are familiar with Matthew chapter 7, right? Jesus has moved his way, reaches the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Our students have been studying that gospel on Wednesday nights. Many faithful men have been wonderful with their time to serve and bless them there, of which we're thankful but at the, towards the end of Matthew chapter 7, you see this where Jesus is teaching and there's two different types of gates, right? There's a small gate and then there's a wide gate. The small gate leads to life and it's narrow and Jesus says few find it. And yet the wide gate leads to where? To destruction, Christ says. The way is broad and many have entered into it. Narrow gate and wide gate. Few and many. Now as you make your way through the Christmas season, I I want us to be very honest and candid this morning. It's a very, very busy time of year, is it not? Our schedules get overwhelmingly full. Day and evening. Parties and socials. Store runs, etc., errands, items on the list to check off. I want to ask you to, in this moment, to pause in this season and simply ask you to think about your friends, your family, and your co-workers and ask the very simple question, what gate are they presently going through? Is it the small gate or is it the wide gate? And the quick follow-up question to, to that ought to be, Have you shared the gospel with that person? Answering those questions is going to tell you a great deal about your heart at this moment for the lost. When we look at our Savior Himself, this one that we celebrate, His arrival, His birth, His coming to this earth on this rescue mission for us, we know full well His heart for the lost as we make our way through the Gospels, do we not? 
You have Luke chapter 19. We, we actually see that this was the purpose of His coming. Right? I came to seek and save that which was lost. And in that context, He looks over the city that has rejected Him. And what does Jesus do on behalf of these people? He weeps for them. He's, he's crushed. He's devastated. Right? Not... Not so much of, of what awaits him on the cross, but the fact that those people in that city did not know him and had not received him. They had rejected him. His heart was on full display and was throughout his life. Paul had a very similar heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He, he says he literally expended his, himself for the sake of their souls. He poured out the entirety of his life that men and women might come to know Jesus Christ. My natural question for myself, Wade Grubbs, is, Wade, do you have a similar, similar heart as Christ? Do you have a similar heart as Paul? I'm okay enough to say I, I don't have that degree and that heart, that burden. That's why this morning's so important. Our memory verse is 1 Peter 3.15 where we are exhorted to sanctify the Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for this hope that is in you. And are they cognizant and aware that, man, that Jesse is full of hope. Mr. Cantrell is full of hope. Drew is full of hope. Do they know that about you? And as they do, are you ready to make a defense to tell them why you are one filled with hope? And we do this with gentleness and reverence. So let's look at now the call to witness. We have to feel this call in our lives. And the first thing that we note is that the call to witness is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a spiritual activity that's reserved for a few that are Gifted and exceptional in this area. And that's how a lot of us think about evangelism, is it not? Man, I know so-and-so, and they just, they know how to articulate things. They know how to turn conversations. Every time I look up, they are actively and intentionally pursuing people and having people over. They're just really gifted at that. We begin to think in our minds that this activity is reserved for those people. But we need to banish that from our thinking this morning. Evangelism is a command that rests on every single one of us, regardless of who you are. In fact, it's so applicable and so relevant to all of us that Christ Himself actually closes all four of His Gospels with a command to do what? To evangelize. His last words were what they were to do after His departure. In Acts chapter 1, His last words literally on the earth was to go and evangelize. And we know what this command looks like, right? What does the Great Commission say? Matthew 28, 19-20. What does it convey to us? Can you speak to me. Okay. Um, Thank you. You're coming through for me this morning. I appreciate you. I, I want you to know I appreciate you. 
Go and make disciples, right? Go, and as you're going, going about your day, be making disciples. Baptize them, teach them. I want us to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, verse 4 this morning. Go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 for a moment. The, the call to witness is a command. Second thing I want us to notice is that the gospel is a sacred trust. When we look at the call to witness, this gospel is a sacred trust. First Thessalonians 2.4 I will get there. But just as we have been approved by God to be, and what's the following phrase? You read it with me. What does it say? To be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We just read it a moment ago, but what has occurred to us in relationship to the gospel? What has God done to us? He has entrusted. Now, what does it mean for the gospel to be entrusted to you? What ought you to be, what ought you be compelled to do? How should, how should you, how should this compel you to live knowing that you've been entrusted with this thing known as the gospel? What should flow out of that? Obedience. Eagerness. What else? Action. What's that? Love. Responsibility, right? If your parents or grandparents entrust something to you, it comes with a degree of weight and, and, and soberness, right? Like, I've been entrusted with this, something that is has been precious and is precious and now is imparted to me, I should be prompted to guard it, protect it, steward it, share it, cherish it, right? All of this comes wrapped up in this idea. It is a sacred trust, right? We have been given this treasure in earthen vessels, <laughs> jars of clay, 2 Timothy 1.13 says something very similar. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And here it is, the treasure, this gospel, which has been entrusted to you. When we talk about this call on our lives, it is a command, not a suggestion and not reserved for a few. And I need to think of it in the vein that this has been entrusted to me, which naturally should prompt me to ask, what am I doing with that which has been entrusted? Is it tucked away? Is it hidden? Am I dispensing it? Am I guarding it? Am I zealous for its purity, right? And integrity? Do I love it? Do I gaze upon it? Am I doing these things? Are you? doing these things. Charles Spurgeon, I think this is in your notes. Is it in your notes? Thank you. 
All right. Never know what gets in after print, okay? He said and wrote the following, No one of us can be exempted from the work of spreading the gospel because we are engaged in some other work. Good as it is, though it may be very intimately connected to the kingdom of Christ, yet it does not exonerate us from the work of endeavoring to bring sinners to Christ. There is nothing whatsoever in the whole world compass of Scripture to excuse any mouth from speaking for Jesus when the heart is really acquainted with His salvation. It's a great phrase. We are all called to make Jesus known if we know Him. Let us trust in the divine energy of the Holy Ghost and speak the truth and reliance upon His might. None of us are exempted. I think there was an important principle that Spurgeon was conveying there. By all means, use your spiritual gifts. Some of you are just treasures to this church in terms of you serving in the backdrop. You come early, you stay late, you, you, you set up and you tear down. And you, you fill your life with a lot of good activity. You're serving in Sunday school. All of these things are wonderful. And may your tribe increase. And may we continue to be faithful. But I think the principle that Spurgeon was conveying, as each of you begin to use your gifts in different ways, and that will look in different forms for all of you, none of us are exonerated from making Jesus known, of living out Psalm 96, right? Sing to the earth the glory of His name. Sing to the Lord all people. Ascribe to Him glory and strength. Why? For He is coming. <laughs> He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. And our lives should be marked by that. This call rests on all of us. And let's now look at the hindrances to evangelism. I was going to ask, what are some of the hindrances? But inevitably, some of you would cheat and look at the screen. Okay? That's okay. We already know what some of those hindrances are. Right? If we are under divine orders to share the gospel, why do we hesitate? And why are we unfaithful? Now, none of these are excuses. Well, they are excuses, but they're lame excuses. Excuses nonetheless. And they need to be dismantled for what they are. One would just be intimidation. We're simply afraid of failing. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to turn the conversation. I'm not just, I'm not sharp on my feet. I, I watch so and so and they just have the ability, they, they can take talking about doing laundry and find their way in the gospel in a matter of seconds. How do they do that? I, I love that account in the beginning of Exodus with Moses, right? Moses is wrestling with being sent to God's people. And he's letting this be known to God. And what does God tell him in Exodus 4.12? Who is it that made man's mouth? Or deaf, or dumb, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I made your mouth, Moses. And he made your mouth. And that mouth is to be moving and dispensing and sharing a certain treasure that's been entrusted to you. We're afraid of failing. We'll unpack that more in a moment. We have the fear of man. We're just peer pressure. We're afraid of not being accepted. If I do share at my secular place of work, I'm, 
I, I might be ostracized. I may missed out on desired opportunities that I, I want in this life. And the list goes on. These things, this fear of man. And to be honest, we can think of a lot of other cursory examples and excuses, but they really all rest on under each one of these umbrellas, if not multiple ones, right? The fear of man is prevalent in all of our hearts, as is selfishness. We're just busy. We are a busy, busy people. Busy with our own lives, our own calendars, our own agendas. And that's only accentuated... Unfortunately, in this month, there's a lot of good things that we do this time of year. And and I encourage you, do them. And do them to the glory of God. Make memories with family and friends. Be intentional with neighbors. But as you do so, pray along the way, God, would you help me not be so myopic that I just zero in on my own life and the next thing that I need to check off my list? Would you... Allow me to cast my eyes up around me and see people and respond as my Savior did when He looked on the city of Jerusalem. I want want to weep as you wept. Lord, help me to not be so busy that I miss out on that type of tenderness and brokenness for the lost. So we repent of selfishness. Another excuse and hindrance would just be ignorance of the Gospel. Perhaps one of the reasons we I don't know what to say is that that is no truer words have been spoken when you utter that is because perhaps spending time on knowing what is those what are those critical parts of the gospel that that need to be expounded upon and mentioned and shared. And we'll turn our attention to that in just a moment. Let's dress down some of these hindrances a little further. I don't want us to to escape just having squirmed a few seconds, I want us to rest here and say, Lord, would you deal with us? So let's look at intimidation. I think it's safe to say that we do not need to be intimidated in sharing the gospel. To which I ask you, why are some of the reasons why we do not need to be intimidated when sharing the gospel? You tell me. What's that? It's not in our strength. Excellent. Alejandro, what else? He does the work, right? We are not responsible for turning the hearts of men. If he's used a donkey, he could use me, right? Okay? That's exactly right. It's not man's words. That is the power of evangelism. Each of you are no doubt probably familiar with Romans chapter 1, right? It's the Spirit that gives the gospel its power. Right, The gospel, intrinsically, in and of itself, is powerful. This, in many reasons, is why in Romans 1.16, Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God unto salvation for those who believe. He's not ashamed. Nor should we be ashamed. I love the example of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. They're arrested, seized, beaten, humiliated. And of all the things to be concerned with in their life, they offer up this prayer and ask other believers to pray for them. As they pray to the Lord, Lord, take note of their threats 
and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. Arrested, beaten, humiliated, Lord, take note of their threats and fill me with boldness. What were they praying? Lord, help us not be intimidated by this same angry mob that arrested you and nailed you to a cross. Fill me with confidence and boldness. And that ought to be our prayer as well. The fear of man. This idea that our status, our our view in people's eyes will be affected and impacted. What was already mentioned is that it's not us in the first place who converts man's souls. God is the one who does this, not us, the messenger, right? Our job is to give the message. It is not our job to convince the person of the gospel. This is the job and work of the Holy Spirit himself, right? John chapter 3, this interaction with Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, no one can see the kingdom of God. Now, last time I checked, I don't have the capacity to cause someone to be born again. And nor do you. Acts 26.15 It's also in your notes. I do believe if it's not, look at the screen. Look it up in your Bibles. Acts 26.15 Paul's describing his conversion in Agrippa. And he says the following, and I said, again, he's recalling this, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And I love verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. God was sending him to open up the eyes. Paul doesn't do that. God does that. And I love the way verse 18 expounds upon that. In that eye-opening experience and work of the Lord, they turn from darkness to light. They receive forgiveness of sins. And they receive an inheritance. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is not in your notes. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Make your way there. We'll look at verse 6 through 16. All underscoring the same principle. When we're talking about the fear of man. One of the things we unpacked in soteriology. This regeneration is God's work. It's not ours. And that's so freeing and liberating. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6. Yet we do not speak with wisdom among, the, among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of, of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us God revealed to them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? 
Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In verses 14 through 16, we've touched on this in some weeks prior. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritually appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural man does not receive these things. Well, then why do I need to be afraid? I don't need to be afraid. I just share. We'll talk in a moment what it is that we do share. What needs to be shared explicitly. Charles Spurgeon named my second son Fletcher Haddon Spurgeon, so I have an affinity. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it power to convert the soul. It's a good word. Right in line with 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Intimidation, fear of man, selfishness. Don't really need to spend a lot of time here. Perhaps even just this week, more application to spend this week praying that the Lord would eradicate vestiges of selfishness in your life and they are pronounced and, and varied and lie in every facet of our life, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Would the Lord reveal those things to us and give us eyes for those around us? The fourth would just be ignorance. We need to know the message, plain and simple. We need to know the message. We need to always be ready. And it's our responsibility to be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within us. I love that in First Peter, right? Be ready <laughs> to make a defense. The implication there is what? Or implied there is Often throughout my day, I am not ready. <laughs> That's why I need to be exhorted as such. Be ready as to you this morning. We need to know the message, which leads us to the, our next point. The essentials to evangelism. Foot on accelerator. Does a person need to understand every nuance about the Christian faith in order to be saved? I heard no, and that would be right. To which we should then ask, well then, what is it that needs to be understood? What are the essentials of the Gospel? Well, at a minimum, a person must understand a few things. One, they must see themselves as sinful before a holy God. Okay, Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous indeed, no, not even one. Everyone is to see themselves to begin as sinful and entirely and completely sinful before a holy God. Secondly, is to understand that they need a Savior to save them from their sins. That the wages of those sins is death. 
but that the free gift of God is also eternal what? Life. Romans 6.23. And they must also understand that God, through the sacrifice of Christ His Son, is the only means of salvation. Emphasis on only. John 14.6, He is the way and the truth in the life. Acts 4.12, there's no other name given on heaven or earth by which we must be saved. The exclusivity of Christ needs to be held out. They're not simply adding Christ to their otherwise partly worthy life. They are completely destitute and woefully unworthy of any good favor from this God who's made them. If anything, the opposite true. Gospel of John says that if we do not believe in Him, we even now presently rest on the, under the wrath of God. And you fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. These will be the same individuals who will literally cry for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the great wrath of the Lamb who is to come. Right? They need to see themselves as desperate and bankrupt. But that there's also good news. According to 1 Corinthians 15.3, that if one sees themselves as sinful before the Holy God and they understand that they, they need a Savior who, who would save them from their sins and they understand that God Himself through the sacrifice of His Son has offered that salvation, they need to know that the good news that Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 15, very simple, and I love simplicity, Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised three days later. You want to know where you start of what you need to share? That's it right there. That that individual is sinful and is in need of a Savior. The Savior has come, He's died, was buried, and He rose again, declaring in resounding fashion that His sacrifice was sufficient to save them. That needs to be articulated to those in your life. Church, this is important because we live in a day in our modern times, this postmodern age where we like to kind of water down and do away entirely with just absolutes. So this notion of 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died, was buried, and was raised. It's crucial for us to emphasize this. Why? Because people need to see the exclusivity of Christ. It's not many ways to heaven. It's not that they're partially a good person and they need a quarter portion to just make up for the rest of the way and tip the scales and grant them interest into God's heaven. That's not what the Gospel conveys. And we've talked about that at length. About our condition. This demands acceptance. And to delay or refuse is the equivalent of rejecting this message. Now, many people do not understand these truths for a few reasons. One, there's vast confusion in our day, and this needs to be cleared up, that man cannot save himself, for starters. You know the account in Mark, the rich young ruler. He looks up to Christ and he says, well, then who then can be saved? You have to love the Lord's response there, right? With man... Nothing, nothing is possible. With God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible. <laughs> Great question, <laughs> young ruler. With God, all things are possible. 
They understand that God is holy and righteous and that He hates sin. God is watered down in their mind. They, they don't re- embrace this notion of Psalm 5 that the, the boastful shall not stand in His presence. That He hates and abhors those who do iniquity. Our God hates sin and will deal with sin, sin swiftly in due time. And they misunderstand that Jesus Christ is God, right? Colossians 2.9 It pleased Him to have all deity dwell in Him in bodily form. We covered that some months ago in our second hour. They misunderstand that Christ's death on the cross was for our sin, right? 1 Peter 3.18 Well, fast forward a few months. We'll be right there in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. For Christ died for sin once for all, the just and the unjust, so that He might what? Bring us to God. And they last misunderstand that Christ offers heaven as a free gift of God. They don't earn it. It's all of grace. All of His kindness. How do we go about being faithful? We've got a few more minutes here. Talk about the strategy for evangelism. I think for starters is to witness by your life. Now, I'll give you a headline with this. We won't stop here because this is where a lot of us start. stop. You know, if I just live a godly life and people can see Christ in me and I never have to communicate anything, we're going we're gonna to say still more about that in just a moment. But we do need to start by saying there is a component where your life does witness to some degree. Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling and complaining, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Friends, even though the outcome of evangelism is completely dependent upon God, there's still a great sense where our lives must match our message. Yes? God has called us Christians to live in such a way as to, as Philippians says, to live as light, to display light. Matthew chapter 5 underscores a similar thing. Now, I want to hear from you this morning. Why is it important for our lives to match our message? You tell me. Okay. Okay. Okay, says our, our, they won't believe the believability of the gospel perhaps is undermined because they see no transformation or power of God in our lives. Okay, you add anything else? Okay, we can do a number to our credibility, right? We want to open our mouths, but we're automatically dismissed because we have this life that does not match that which we are espousing. That's a problem. And while we ultimately can't be in control of man's heart turning back to God, we can put stumbling blocks in front of people, can't we? Our lives are either going to earn people's respect so that we can be heard, or they will look at you and simply denounce you as a Hypocrite, And for us as believers, there's probably no stronger word that can be attached to us as that of hypocrite. John MacArthur writes the following, The world judges the gospel, which is the heart of the word of God, 
by the character of the people who believe and claim to be transformed. The true effectiveness of evangelism does not come from man-made methods, strategy, or marketing techniques adapted from the culture. That's important in our day. Like if we just get a strategy or a niche or a package that we buy and we can go out and disseminate it, it's going to work. John MacArthur, a pastor preacher, writes, No, it comes from the genuine virtue, moral purity, and godliness of believers whose lives give proof of the truth of God's Word and the power of Christ to redeem men from sin. That is what silences the critics and makes the gospel believable. We are holding out this message entrusted to us that's able to radically and powerfully change them in every facet, from death to life, from unrighteousness to righteous in God's eyes. Let's not put a stumbling block in front of people by our own hypocrisy. I would just ask you this morning, what kind of witness are you giving by your life? As we seek to live faithfully before God and manifest to others what we are pronouncing as being powerful, that no, this God that I'm saying can change you and save you, I've showed you in my own life and how I've carried myself and the decisions that I've made and what I've refrained from, I've displayed to you that He's changed my life. And I hold that out to you this morning. May that be kind of the pattern of our life. And as it's our pattern, may we also be people who are quick to pray. I think there's something good about if we harness intimidation and fear of man and selfishness and, and knowledge of the gospel, is it can produce a healthy degree of desperation. <laughs> Sweet desperation. Where we're prompted like, you know, some of you may be just really gifted orators and you're able to just enunciate things and communicate with people and turn conversations and you never made a stranger and you can talk to a brick wall. And some of you are going, yeah, I'm not that person, but I know those people. There's still ought to be this desperation in our life where we are desperate for God to intervene and show up. And so what do we do? We pray. That's how we express and manifest our desperation. Romans 10.1 What was it that was from Paul's heart? My heart's desire, my prayer to them, to God for them, is for their salvation. He knew it was to come from the Lord and his prayers were indicative of that. Colossians 4, 3-4. What is it, his request that Paul asked the Colossians to pray for? Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So we pray. right? We, if we're afraid, we do what Peter and John did. We pray for confidence. Take note of their threats. They can't do anything to us. But fill us with confidence to speak the whole of your word. And as we do so, and we open our mouths, we are quick to use God's word too. Don't rest on your own words. <laughs> That would be one key. We were in the book of Colossians. Now we're in the book of Hebrews. In the year 2026, our pastor will be in chapter 4 at that point, And we'll get to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and 
piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. This is what God's Word will do. I don't have to convince. I don't have to pierce. I don't have to convict. I'm just entrusted with a treasure, and I hold it out. 2 Timothy 3, same thing. It's able to make one wise, lead them to salvation. I think one just practical thing as we close, takeaway, we want to become witnesses, better at evangelism. Spend time memorizing God's Word. If it's God's Word that we are to use and you want to be in any moment, you can just recall it and communicate it and hold it out with precision and clarity and conviction. Just have it be so on your frontal lobe that it's just there and it's able to just come out at a moment's notice. So spend time memorizing those verses which would be critical in those moments. If you need help with that, talk to any one of us. Okay, A couple of reads that we would encourage that are in your notes. I would encourage that. Christmas is a sweet time to be faithful in this area, isn't it? We get to capture this moment and use it well. I pray that we will. Just to remind you, we will next Sunday take a break from fundamentals. It'll be a Christmas sort of lesson for Equip. We'll take two weeks break. We'll come back on the 9th of January. We'll have two more lessons, the 9th and the 16th. And we'll start the book of 1 Peter on the 23rd of January. Okay? If you want to spend the next few weeks... I know a lot of you are spending time in Hebrews, but just begin having the book of 1 Peter wash over you. If you want to incorporate that in some of your reading, I don't want to blow up any reading plan. Some of you are saying it's December. My my reading plan blew up a long time ago. Um, Get 1 Peter in front of you, okay, over the next month and a half, okay? Excellent. Let's go ahead and pray for our morning. God, we thank you for this day. We, We thank you that at some point, if we be in Christ this morning, someone was faithful to do what we just looked at this morning, they were faithful to, to steward this treasure that you imparted to them. We want to thank you for each of those individuals in our lives who communicated the gospel to us. We thank you for their faithfulness. And Lord, we thank you for the miracle that you wrought in our lives, that you would make us your children. We in turn also now want to ask in the days to come that you would now use us to be those same people to others. Help us to be faithful with neighbors and coworkers and friends and family. We're going to have a lot of opportunity that in your providence you will put in front of us. And we want to steward those moments well. We want to steward those conversations and those relationships for your glory. We ask that you would fill us with courage. You would fill our words with wisdom. And Lord, give us a deep-seated faith that it is you who's going to turn the hearts of man to yourself. May we rest in that and rejoice in that and grateful that you have done such in us. We ask that our worship would be marked in a very open, honest, and powerful way by this wonderful truth as we enter into the next hour, that our our songs would be lifted up with all the energy and might in the world because we are overwhelmed by your goodness and kind to us that you would send a Savior. We say thank you and we pray this now in his name. Amen.